Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marts and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome back to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. My name is Martin Lestraps, as I'm sure you all figured out by listening to the show. Did I just whistle? Like when I said the word sure, I'm pretty sure I heard a whistle. Like I, it's as if I had a chipped tooth. Uh, I have no idea. But anyway, if you heard the whistle, then uh, assume it was because uh, I thought you were looking particularly good today. So I gave you a whistle. I've got a great episode this week, a terrific conversation that I had with Hal Bodner. Hal Bodner, he is a, he's a horror author. And he's probably best known for his vampire novel, Bite Club. And, uh, and most recently, uh, he, he published uh, a sequel. I don't know if it's an... I, I, well, we talk about it during the show. Uh, I, don't know if he, I don't know if it's so much a sequel, but it's definitely a, a continuation of the story with, you know, with, with the main characters going forward. And the more I, the more I describe it, I, I'm, I'm clearly describing what would be considered a sequel. Anyway... That book is called The Trouble with Harry. Hal published that recently. Uh, we talked about those two novels, uh, as well as, I, I think we covered most all of his work. He's done uh, some really terrific work, uh, beginning with, you know, again, with, with Bike Club, which came out uh, about seven or eight years ago. And uh, I've, I've got to tell you, Hal Bodner, he's, he's, uh, he, he's quite a character in the best possible way. Uh, terrifically nice guy. I met him, well, actually, we, we, we talk about this too, Hal and I. We didn't officially meet, but a few months back, when I attended uh, a meeting of the Horror Writers Association, the, uh, the L.A. chapter, uh, Hal Bodner was, uh, he was at the meeting. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a long-standing member of the HWA, uh, one of their most sort of, you know, loyal and active, uh, advocates and contributors. And so at this particular meeting, uh, I, I remember pretty clearly when, you know, when Hal walked in and, I mean, you know, he didn't like he didn't walk in in the middle of the meeting. You know, people were showing up. But I remember from the moment he he showed up, uh, I, I think he showed up talking and, and cracking jokes and and sort of holding court. And he was just extremely interesting and engaging and, and funny and smart and, and a whole lot of other things, you know, wrapped up together in a in a in a extremely articulate and intellectual and fascinating package. And in fact, once you get to know Hal, I can only imagine the second that I made reference to Hal and Package, he probably already had a joke working out, but uh unfortunately he he's not here as I do this introduction. But if he were, I can only imagine what Hal would have to say about that. So anyway, after I left uh, the meeting that evening, I you know, in my mind I felt like I'd met this really cool, interesting writer, you know, named Hal Bodner. And I don't think it was until I was driving home that I realized that he and I didn't actually meet. He just had just such a strong, interesting, engaging personality that I felt like I'd actually, you know, chatted with him at some point, but uh, but I didn't. But when I got home, I, I looked up his work, 
and uh, and you know the the first title that uh, that came up was Bike Club. <clears throat> Bike Club. I could barely say that. I don't know what happened just now. It was as if I was. It's it's right when I was saying Bike Club. Uh, it I don't know. It was as if there was like a a glob of honey at the roof of my mouth, and then uh, and I and I couldn't quite uh, get it out. But anyway. Bike Club. <laughs> that's a Hal's first novel. So that's the first novel that uh, that I came across when I was looking into him. And as soon as I saw it, I recognized the title and I recognized the cover. And and you know, and I don't, I I, I still don't know where I've seen it before. Hal and I, we talked about it briefly during our conversation. I'm fairly certain I I must have seen his book on the Amazon bestseller list. Um, at some point, because I don't know how how else I would just sort of recognize that book, unless it was you know, unless there's like a glitch in the matrix, right? And there's a there's a glitch in the matrix, and I'm having a deja vu moment, which really means that uh, that there's maybe something a foul happening with the uh, with the <laughs> what the fuck is it called? The oh shit, what's that sci-fi term? When uh, humans and machines and computers, the singularity. God damn it! Look at me. I was trying to have a conversation with you guys. I had a I had a nice string of thought going. Uh, my my but the momentum was moving forward. I was feeling good about what I had to say to you, and then I I fucked myself up because I couldn't think of the goddamn word the singularity. Anyway, something going on with the singularity glitch in the matrix. At any rate, I recognized Hal's uh, Hal's book cover, and so uh, I, I read about uh, you know that book. I looked into some of his other work, and I you know, and I remember thinking to myself, he was such an interesting character. I would love to have him on the podcast, but because I didn't actually meet him, like officially meet him at the meeting, uh, I wasn't sure if you know. Since we you know, basically, since I didn't establish a personal relationship with him, I wasn't exactly sure if I could, you know, reach out and uh, and and ask him to to be a guest on the show. So luckily, what ended up happening is Hal and myself ended up uh, chatting on Facebook. Uh, he was he was aware of the podcast, and uh, amongst the HWA members, I basically put out an open invitation. To, to any of the HWA members who wanted to be a guest on the show because I had such a great time at the meeting. And, and I did have an opportunity to meet several uh, authors there. And so I, I've had the opportunity to talk to a few of the members of the HWA Los Angeles chapter, including uh, Tim Chismar, who, of course, you guys have heard before. He's a member of the HWA. And Eric Gennard, who we had a just a wonderful conversation. Also, Janet Joyce Holden, uh, she and I had a really great chat a few weeks back, and most recently I talked to Terry M. West. Uh, we just had just a, a really great conversation on the podcast, uh, and, and, you know, Terry was just, you know, just so honest and so candid that, you know, really opening up about stuff that uh, I, uh, m- most of which I didn't know of because, you know, Terry and I essentially met for the first time when we when we did the interview uh, so, you know, with Terry, you know, I was, I was anticipating that we would talk about, you know, writing and publishing, which we did. And I figured we would talk about his latest novel, Heroin and the Magic Now, which we also did. But I was, I was very blown away by his honesty and the, and the things that he was willing to talk about, including his, his struggles with, you know, substance abuse. And, um, 
And so, so I've had some really great experiences with uh, members of the HWA, uh, especially you know on the podcast. And so, because of that, you know, Hal uh, Hal Bodner and I were uh, ultimately you know got in touch with each other, and he uh, he expressed interest in having uh, and being on the show. And so, as soon as Hal expressed interest in in being on the show, I jumped at the opportunity to to speak with him, and we uh, we arranged a, a, a we arranged a date a day and a time and. And he came by and we chatted, and uh, and I mean he, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I guess it was actually it was slightly more complicated that than that than it turns out because like you know because Hal uh, he's very very sweet and charming and funny and so one of the first things he told me is that while he has a driver's license and he can drive, uh, it's better if uh, if uh, if he has somebody drive him and so um, so he basically had to make arrangements for his husband to drive him uh, over here to to do the interview. So then the scheduling became both about, you know, figuring out a day where Hal and I could, could sit down and chat, but then also a day where Hal's husband would be available to, to drive him over here for the interview. Hal's husband, incidentally, just a terribly nice guy, a wonderful gentleman, sweet person. Um, he was hanging out in the background. You won't hear him during the conversation, but he was, you know, he was sitting off on the background, you know, hanging out. Um, really enjoyed meeting him as well. Anyway, I'll tell you what. I'm going to keep this introduction short because uh, Hal and I we we spoke for uh, we spoke for a good long while, and I I loved every minute of it. And I really don't want to I, I don't want to put off getting you to this conversation any longer than I have to. So, uh, coming up right now is my conversation with uh, horror author Hal Bodner. Uh, we talked about a, a number of things, including you know writing and publishing. And Hal's work as an entertainment lawyer, his experience in representing, uh, well, you know what? I won't tell you who he represented. I'll let you hear about that during the conversation. So if all of that sounds good to you, then let's move on with the show. I left home at 16. Um, I went to college very early because I, I know I, I come off as very fluffy, um, <laughs> but I'm very bright, apparently. At least that's what they tell me. Um, he said as that. his ego swells to fill the room. Um, but um, I left home at 16 and I kind of never went back. Wow. Um, so. Um, that's, I can't. Was it? Because uh, that seems like such a young age to kind of. I mean, you, you were on your own at 16? Well, I went to college. Um, oh. So so it was I was sort of on my own, but but not even really. that. So did you finish high school early? Oh yeah, no, oh, no. Well, I was I was. I, I, you're you're a baby. I'm I'm an, I'm a, I'm a fat old man. <laughs> so what happens is, um, back in the '60s, if you were born after September, uh-huh. there was this weird thing where if you if you got like special dis- dispensation from like the Pope of the school board, yeah, you could get your kids in. Um, even though they were born in November, December, okay, a year a year old early, okay, because and and then if you didn't, they would they would have to wait for another year. Got so it. I was one of the people that got in, even though I wasn't old enough to start school in September. I was only like three months late, so my parents got me in early. Okay, so you graduated at sixteen, but it wasn't necessarily that you, you know, shaved off a year. No, 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 no. Okay, no. I mean, it's still it, so, but at sixteen, you were in college. That's still yeah. But only, I was only 16 for like three months. All right. But even 17 in yeah, college. I yeah. mean, there's, I mean, like when you're that, like I always think about that, like when you're, 
when you're say you know like the difference between when you're 13 and somebody's 16 it just seems like the biggest gap in the world right so if you're you know 17 and you're in college maybe around 20 21 21 year olds did it feel like there was a, a, a an age gap between the students you were in class with yeah no 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 I was I was just I'm that, that you know Martin there were so many other unusual things about me for the very early 80s that <laughs> <laughs> I mean the fact that I was a very very open homosexual um that the 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 age difference was no, no was there was there uh how long was there ever a point where where you weren't uh openly homosexual or was that always something that you were no you know people say to me when did you come out and i go i, I go um it, I, i'm like i'm like the, the the jungle woman what means this thing come out <laughs> you know i just don't get it you know when i when i um when i um uh, uh became uh, sexually aware, it was always you know same sex oriented, um, and I was and 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 I know that we're eventually going to get into the writing, so I yeah. may as well say again now. Okay, um, I I think my work reflects that in the fact that that culturally I'm really 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 rooted in the gay culture, yeah, um, because that was kind of the heyday of it, you mm-hmm. know, the late '60s, '70s, '80s before we were assimilated, yeah, um, and I uh, that's what I do, that's what I that's what I live. And I was young, and I was bright, and I was really pretty, um, <laughs> and I was very mature for my age. Um, um, so at 16, 17, 18 years old, I got to do things like go into Studio One. Uh, not oh, wow. Studio One. Um, uh, Studio 54. Studio 54. Studio One was out here. Um, and I was underage. And I was in, for the, it was, it, people think of Studio 54 as like this huge thing. It was only open for like three years. Oh, really? Yeah, it was very, very short. And I would, I was in, I'm definitely underage. <laughs> Um, and I was allowed to do anything except go downstairs because downstairs was where everybody did the drugs. Yeah. And I think they were they were cognizant that, you know, you don't want a 16, 17-year-old kid sure. downstairs. But upstairs in the main bar, yeah, and I drank. Yeah, and that was in uh, New York, was Studio yeah. 54? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, what kind of crazy stuff did you see there? Because I've heard about it. But... Oh, um, <laughs> oh, God, my God. Or where do you start, right? It was owned by a guy named Steve remember his last name but um and he would get completely schnockered and and he and there were very very famous people at, at, at studio 54 um you know you never know who you would say and then and steve would just kind of like grab the microphone um uh in the middle of like this whole disco thing going on and he would like be talking to like Diana ross or liza minnelli or angelica houston and they would not be in the bar <laughs> and he would like be having these conversations with them um, because in his mind they were there. I mean, not that. I mean, if if, if Liza Minnelli wasn't there, you know, Diana Ross was. It was that kind of thing. But he would just. There were times when he was talking to people who just weren't there, um, which was amazing. You know, That's cool. funny. Now, where did you? Because uh, I, I where, where where did you get your uh, uh, your or do you have a bachelor's degree? I'm assuming. Oh, I have. I I I, I tell my husband. I'd say, I, you know, I have so many degrees. I wipe my butt with. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what I have. I, I was. I love school. But I was gonna say, I, I know. I know that you have uh, your uh, your 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 law degree. Your your. I have a juris doctorate. I think. I, I think I may have a couple of doctorates. Oh okay. Doctorates. I'm not sure. I, well, the, that's the thesis one, right? I'm, I may be bright, but I'm an airhead. <laughs> Complete airhead. Fluffy. I'm fluffy. Um. Yeah. I. Th- I have. I. I have. I have at least one doctorate. Doc. Doctorate. <laughs> I, I talk. I me talk good someday. I'm, I'm channeling David Sedaris. Um, I have one doctorate. Um, I know I have a bachelor of fine arts, but I 
think I have a couple of masters. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> That's all right. I, I mean, don't use them. That, I, 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 I kind of know what you mean. They're kind of like baking pans. If you don't take them out, you don't. You don't. You so um, uh, mainly, I was thinking. So when you when you first got into to college, what uh, what school were you at? Rutgers. Okay. Yeah, Rutgers. I, I went to Rutgers like seven years, college, law school, hooking. Oh, well, Down okay. to like the, the gray suit and the burgundy vest and walking around with New England locked on. You know. <laughs> it was fun. So uh, at what point did you end up in West Hollywood? Um, I graduated from law school and I had a, a, a real close friend uh, in, in law school and um, he was a year ahead of us and he moved out to Mission Viejo. Um, and for your listeners that don't know, uh, Mission Viejo was this kind of little teeny weeny town. I think there were maybe 40 homes and a, and oh, a wow. first interstate bank back then. And now Mission Viejo like spreads from the Pacific Ocean inland like oh, yeah. 40 miles. It's <laughs> like this yeah. huge, but they've got like 90 story buildings there. I'm exaggerating. But, <laughs> um, and um, so I came out with this girlfriend of mine. Um, uh, we were kind of partners in crime. And we came out to California. We were out here for a couple of weeks. And then uh, I finished law school. I graduated law school. I took a couple of bars New Jersey, Pennsylvania, ran up with, was I, I think Washington, I don't remember. Uh, again, it's like the baking <laughs> pan. If you don't use it, you forget it. And um, uh, I uh, had a bunch of uh, junk in the apartment, and I started to um, pack stuff and box them up and put them away into storage. And um, my oldest friend in the world happened to stop by, and she said to me, um, where are you moving? And I said, what do you mean? And I, I realized that I had looked around, uh, looked around the apartment, and I realized that I had packed up everything I owned. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, I'm going to California. And she looked at me and she said, you're shitting me. <laughs> and I said, no, because I was such a New York person. Yeah. I mean, I was such a New Yorker. I mean, I, even though I wasn't a New Yorker, mm-hmm. I was a New Yorker. I mean, I was, in a, I was in college and we used to rent a place on West 44th Street. Uh, between 9th and 10th, it was a, 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 a what you used to call a cold water flat. Okay. Um, it was like a, a bedroom, a, a kitchen with a bathroom next to the sink, <laughs> and then a little room in the back. I think we paid like $400 a month or something, $200 a month. It was nothing. Okay, yeah. And um, and I was like in New York every weekend. Um, and and I, everybody thought I was going to be a New Yorker. And um, years later, when I was an entertainment lawyer, I was talking to uh, an actress by the name of Leslie Uggams on the phone as we were doing a deal. And um, she gave me her address because I was, I think it was Leslie. Like I said, who knows. Um, and she gave me an address, and I said, oh, that's ridiculous. I said, that's, that's because she, she like gave me the address of like the 50 millionth floor. And I said, I know that block. I said, it's like a block away from where I used to live. Um, there's no, you know, there's no big buildings there. Yeah. And she was like, oh, dear, you haven't been back to New York in a while, have you? And I was like, no, because like apparently they have torn down like huge blocks in oh, New York wow. and built like these huge sky rise things. And I was, and I said, come on, I thought she was pulling my leg, but no, that was the address. <laughs> so, okay, so you've been, so that was about, uh, so you got to West Hollywood, uh, let me see. 86, 87 ish. Okay. And so you've been there ever since, right? Yes. Yeah, well, no. No? no. Okay. Oh. If you follow me on Facebook, you know that I had three years in the house from hell in Highland Park. <laughs> Tell you me read about, about that? Uh, it doesn't sound completely familiar, so go ahead oh, and fill me in. Oh, I, I mean, I was, I was involved with the founding of, the, well, not actually the founding of the city, but right after the city of West Hollywood. And, and actually, Bike Club and, and Trouble with Harry are actually set in West Hollywood. Oh, that's, yeah. And one of the things that people really like is the fact that, I mean, you say that this, 
the, the setting is a character, but in this case it really is because West Hollywood is crazy. Um, and um, so one morning, uh, I had lived in this apartment for like 13 years. It was fabulous. It was like this 2,400-square-foot townhouse. It was four bedrooms. And I had leased it for like some incredibly expensive amount. I think I leased it for $1,000 a month, which is nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. And I had been there for like 13 or 14, 15 years. It was huge. And one morning, I got a bang on my door on Sunday morning. It was my landlady, who was this little old Jewish lady. And she's like, you're not paying enough rent. I want you should know you're not paying enough rent. My son says you need to pay. And I'm like, okay, where did this come from? But her son apparently was upset that I was paying so little for the apartment. Uh-huh. And it, you know, it was rent control. But when I moved in, I was paying like double market. Uh-huh. And, um, and so uh, she tried to evict me. I said, it was this whole big drama. Anyway. Um, it worked out okay, and I ended up buying this house, this fixer-up in Highland Park, which was a mistake. Mm. You don't want a little gay boy in the middle of the barrio um, <laughs> when the Crips and the Bloods are doing their drug deals in your backyard. <laughs> oh, goodness. And like literally I, in the backyard? Pretty much, yeah. There was wow. an alley. It was, it was pretty bad. Um, and, and, but the cool thing was the gang was not going to kill me. I was immune from being shot because at the time I had this peacock. Uh-huh. I had a pet peacock. Um, and when we moved into Highland Park, um, he would jump over the fence and go running down Figueroa in the middle of gangland. <laughs> and so there I would be at 11 o'clock at night in my bathrobe and my fluffy strip lippers running down the center of Figueroa <laughs> Boulevard after my peacock, crying and screaming, come back, come back, don't. His name was Apollo. I was like, no, you're going to get run over. And so the gang wouldn't shoot me because I was too fucking funny. <laughs> You know, they would be cracking up that there would be this, you know, this this fat gay guy running down the street after his freaking peacock. All right. Well, it sounds like you uh, you sort of cracked the code of how not to get uh, caught in the, the gang fire. Exchange oh, yeah. The yeah not, the bloods. Absolutely. Not caught in the crossfire. <laughs> Rent a peacock. Uh, well, so so we're going to talk about your books and uh, I, I definitely want to get to them. But but you've had some uh, a few interesting jobs. Um but uh, the the first one that uh, that you kind of already mentioned, you were an entertainment lawyer. Yeah, for years. Yeah. So what was it? How long were you an entertainment lawyer? Uh, twenty years. Oh wow. Ish. Twenty five. Now was that from? Because uh, again, you got your uh, you got your 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 JD degree in nineteen eighty seven. So were you were you practicing uh, entertainment law like immediately thereafter? This is re- I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast, but I may as well. Um, I came out to California. I was a pretty little gay boy with a law degree and a washboard stomach um, and no job. Mm-hmm. And one of the earlier things I did was, you know, it's it's not like today. Today people say, well, I'm not doing that job because I'm worth more. Right. Um, and or it's it's not worth my time. Back then, especially being my own on my own so young, you did I did what I needed to do to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there was something that I could do legally that, that normally would have paid me $2,000 and I could get $400 for it, uh-huh. I did it because it was the choice between, you know, yeah. eating and not eating. Oh, yeah. Um, and nowadays people go, oh, I'm not, do- that's a $2,000 job. I'm not touching that. And I, I never understood that mentality. And, and one of the things I did was, um, it was a very desperate time because, you know, I was in Hollywood. There was still a... There was still a Hollywood back then, mm-hmm. uh, a Boulevard of Broken Dreams, uh, not only in terms of, of, of the ambiance, but in terms of very, very literally. Mm. Uh, if you were in Hollywood, you were with a bunch of 
people that were struggling to make ends meet, that all were going to be stars or directors or musicians, whatever. And I was right there. I mean, I was like a La Brea and Sunset. So oh, wow, yeah. right in the heart of it. Absolutely. And, 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 and I couldn't get a job. I mean, we, we had a writer's strike, a huge writer's strike in 87. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happened was I would start doing little legal jobs for people who needed it. I had a lot of friends that were young, pretty gay boys that were hustling, mm-hmm. you know, peddling their papayas, um, doing massage, <laughs> as Tim Curry would, would phrase it, you know, nights of massage. And... Um, um, Having their pictures taken, and at the time there was it was before the internet. Um, there was these things called nine seven six numbers. Okay. Do you remember those? Sure, yeah. Um, there were sex lines, and a lot of uh, people I knew uh, would do these photo sessions, and then the next thing they would know is they had their photos plastered nationally in magazines, and they oh, got wow. no money for that. Wow. Um, and so my first cases were helping them. Okay. Because they were getting nothing. Uh-huh. For that, I mean, they may have gotten twenty dollars, you know, in a pack of cigarettes for the photo session, right. and then these people were using them for like to make hundreds of thousands wow. of dollars. So I started taking cases like that. Um, I I, I uh, was doing some entertainment stuff. I got really friendly with um, uh, a bunch of the old television actors from the seventies and sixties and seventies. Okay. A lot of them ended up becoming my clients. They were they were past the peak of their career, but they were still working. Yeah. Um, but they weren't huge names. Right. And so the big agencies, the big lawyers didn't want anything to do with them. Right. Um, I had a couple of friends that were working in the adult industry. Okay. And there was a market in the adult industry for um, business law. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, things like corporations and contracts. And the big law firms wouldn't touch it because it was dirty. Right. Um, and then when the Internet came along and they saw big money... They came swooping down. But, but at that point, you know, uh, there were a lot of companies that couldn't get arrested. And I started doing that. And I had a background in theater. Okay. And I did a lot of theater. And for a while in Los Angeles, um, if it was on stage and it was west of the Mississippi, there was about a 30% chance it came across my desk. Okay. So here I am on the one hand, I'm doing, you know, corporate law for some very, very big mainstream names in the music and entertainment industry. Uh-huh. Uh, I was doing a lot of theater. And I was helping, you know, a boy hooker get paid for a photograph that somebody was exploiting. So it was like I was operating wow, yeah. at both ends of the spectrum. And you never knew what was going to be in my office. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Now, with the so as far as being a lawyer, because I think I, I would say the like a, a good number of people like when they hear lawyer they they probably think like like a trial lawyer no but that's not what that's what, so what was it like a day in the life of an entertainment lawyer um transactions it would be anything from um you know doing a, a, a at that back then you actually had to raise money there was no such thing as kickstarter mm. um so there were all these securities laws so it might be anything from um working on uh finance documents from for a broadway musical okay to um um Handling a condo sale for a 1970s sitcom star. Okay. To helping, um, I mean, Ketty Lester was a client. I don't even know if you who she, she was. She wrote. She was saying love letters in the 50s and 60s. Mm. She got. She, she had a horrible situation where the record company just took advantage of her. Oh, and she wow. didn't get any royalties. So we tried to negotiate that. I mean, it would. Who knew? It yeah. would be. It, you never knew uh, what you were going to be doing. That's interesting. Uh, well, let's well, let's well, let's start talking about uh, we'll start talking about your books because um, I have I have you know the, the more we talk I keep having these questions come up but I figure we'll get into the books and then I'll well, I'll kind of get and into then my you'll questions. edit the nine hours of interview down 
<laughs> so we'll start with Bike Club, which is your first uh, your first novel. Yeah. And uh, so let's see, Bike Club. It was published in uh, 2005 by Allison Books. That was the, that was the uh, the print edition. So this was a few years before uh, ebooks started becoming a oh a lot a, a before big, ebooks to be yeah, part yeah, of the market. Yeah. yeah. So the uh, the the digital version of Bike Club would uh, end up on the market in uh, actually earlier this year, March of 2014. Yeah. What what we did with it was we 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 um. Did we self-publish the... No, I don't think we did. I think... I don't think it ever was a digital book. I think that... I th- Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Actually, what we did was we, we, we put it out on Amazon briefly. Okay. You know, we kind of did it ourselves. Sure, yeah. Um, because I... Uh, when Allison Books, unfortunately, went under... Oh, um, I didn't realize they went under. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they I got the rights back, which was okay. great. Well, that's great, yeah. At least you got the rights back, and so the so the uh, so so with the with the rights to Bike Club, well the 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 the, the digital format of, of, of Bike Club was put out by Crossroads. By Crossroads, David Wilson's uh, company. He's great, by the way. Okay, that's yeah, cool. He's and, great. Yeah. And, uh, now, do they? Um, did you? Do you, uh, did you give them the the print rights, or did you hold on to the print rights? No, they don't. They don't do. They do, they do some POD stuff. Okay, but their their big thing is 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 digital. And I knew David as a writer. I mean, I knew who he okay. was. Um, but and I'm so I, I he's a sweetheart and God knows he puts up with me because I am su- I mean for somebody who's as bright as I am I am such a flake and and we will exchange these emails and David will like all but say what planet are you on we went over this four times and I'm like I'm blonde okay I'm spiritually blonde I don't get it just call me Elwood because I just forget things yeah. you know my husband says the same thing my husband will look at me and go I, we just talked about this and I'm like okay. You know, I don't have Alzheimer's. I have Halzheimer's. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, but but Crosswords were great, and they did a fabulous, fabulous new cover. I always hated the original cover. Oh, did you? Uh, that, that it's it's kind of like this this blotchy red thing with mm-hmm. these three silhouettes, and the new cover is great. It's a little martini glass with a with instead of an olive, it's got an eyeball. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah. So let me uh, give the listeners a quick synopsis, sure. and then uh, we'll we'll talk more about the book. So this is a synopsis for Bike Club. The bars of West Hollywood, California, have always played host to a fair share of life-sucking monsters. But until now, that's been mostly metaphoric. After three prime cuts of gay male beef turned up, filleted, and drained of blood, Sheriff Clive Anderson, Coroner Becky O'Brien, and City Manager Pamela Berman are forced to the realization that there is a rogue vampire on the loose. Fight Club is a rollicking black comedy in which the crime-fighting community and the undead community create an uneasy alliance to stop a monster. Uh, so that's Bike Club. Now, I, I, uh, as, 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 I, as far as I understand, and by all means, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong with this, you'd actually written the book about 10 or so years before it was published? Almost eight. Yeah, almost 10 years before it was published. I, I about wrote, eight or nine years? Yeah, I wrote, uh, it was published in 2014. I think, I, I'm not 2014, 2005. I think Bike Club was finished in like 96 or 97. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so in 96 or 97, uh, I mean, certainly you were writing it with the, with the idea of publishing it. No, actually I wasn't. Oh, really? Okay. I well. really wasn't. I, I, was, I, was, I, I honestly, it never occurred to me. Okay, so. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I'm, I believe I, you. Yeah. I completely believe yeah. you. So you were, <laughs> that's, that's uh, well, that, well, I guess that changes my. my, my but my, no, that's okay. Ask it anyway. We'll work around. Well, I was going to say, I was going to ask about your experience, say, in uh, 96, 97 of, uh, of attempting to get it published. But I guess if that didn't happen. Well, what happened was there, this company came to me, and for the life of me, I cannot remember their name. I, I see a white bird in my mind. I don't know whether they were Dove or Seagull or like Great Mountain Auk Publishing, but it was something to do with a bird. 
and it was it was somebody through a client of mine who knew somebody and they read the book and they liked it and they actually paid me a nice little advance um and then they went completely bankrupt okay um but what they had done was they did something really odd was they did some um advanced publicity uh-huh. and so uh almost 10 years later like 8 or 9 years later um i had retired from law okay um and i had um opened up this kind of foofy doggy store where like you could buy like <laughs> paris hilton fur coats for your chihuahua and um this woman came in and we started talking and she recognized my name and i assumed that she recognized my name from entertainment law because back in in the day people knew who i was mm-hmm. i mean i wasn't like huge you know, oh my God, Tom Cruise lawyer. Right. But people knew who I was, right. uh, especially in in merchandising, in the theater, and licensing, and and in 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 you know that type of thing. Yeah. And she recognized my name, and I thought that's what it was. And she said, "You wrote that that book, the vampire book." She said something about, "Oh, vamp until ready," which was the original title. Uh-huh. And vamp until ready is a musical term that means kind of diddle around on the keys until the singer's ready to start. And the original title was called Vamped Already. <laughs> and apparently that always stuck with her. And she, she said, yeah, whatever happened to that? And I said, well, you know, publisher went bankrupt. And she said, well, I'd love to see it. You know, I'm, a, I'm an editor at Adobe. And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, waka waka, ha, 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 right? <laughs> so um, um, uh, that joke actually didn't play at all because it was a visual. Never mind. <laughs> um, but uh, so what happened was I gave her a copy of it. And she, she waltzed back in. Like a week later, and she said, "I'm buying your book." And she handed me a, a fairly substantial check, and wow. I stood there looking at it, going, "Okay, what?" <laughs> and um, it turns out that she was one of the editors for Allison. She was oh, like wow. like the okay. editor for Allison Publications, <clears throat> which at that time was the premier uh, gay and lesbian publishing house in in the world. Oh wow! Uh, I mean, legit. I mean, there's yeah. the one in Germany that does the, uh, you know, the Athletic Models Guild posing strap picture <laughs> books. Okay. You know. The cocktail table books that you take out <laughs> when you're hosting the PTA, um, and she uh, she she uh, she was really thrilled. And the next thing I knew, it was and I knew nothing about publishing. Yeah. And the next thing I knew, um, um, well, actually, I, I well, I'll just keep going. What the hell? Yeah. Um, so what happened was, we I sold the book, and and it took them. She, it, somebody forgot to edit it. It was supposed to come out in October, and there was a snafu internally, and uh, it didn't come out until July. Uh, because Allison had two catalogs a year at that point. And um, so what happened was, by the time it came out, word had spread. And I don't know how word had spread, uh-huh. uh, especially since the the then marketing person at Allison and I did not get along at mm. all. Um, he was very queer national, very um, radical fairy. At least that's what he claimed to be. And as my editor, Angela, said, he hasn't bought clothes outside of Brooks Brothers in 30 years. You know, he needs to get over himself. <laughs> but his attitude was, nobody wants to read about foofy fairies. They want real gay literature. Mm-hmm. And I don't write, I mean, I do write very real, and we can get into that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think Bike Club is a very serious book. But it's, it's, a, it's a farce. It's a comedy. It's a satire. Yeah. And he just didn't get that. Or refused to get that. And Mm -hmm. so we did not get along. But anyway, in some way, uh, the information got out there. And so before the book hit the shelves, and this is in the old days when publishers used to uh, print, do a print run Mm -hmm. and warehouse books. And they did a huge print run for them, for Bike Club. And they actually ended up reprinting. Um, But even before it hit the shelves, um, uh, Inside Out Book Club, which was the Gay and Lesbian Book Club, picked up the rights. They desperately wanted it. And I think it was Book of the Month 
twice. Oh, that's awesome. Or it was Book of the Month and First Alternate. I mean, they did some weird shit they'd never done before. Yeah. And, um, and they paid a lot of money for it. Yeah. So the advance that I got, which was substantial, it was it was an advance along the lines that that you would have gotten um, for a decent book at a major publishing yeah, house. Yeah, that's great. Was recouped before the book oh, hit wow, the shelves. That's great. So I was in royalties right away. I started getting checks right away, mm-hmm. which was great because I, I, you know, I'm fond of saying Bike Club bought my house. It didn't really, but it came close. <laughs> um, and then just when sales started to drop down, Doubleday came in and picked it up. Doubleday Book Club. Oh, that's great. So it was really kind of nice. Yeah. Um, and I, I hadn't intended that to happen. And all of a sudden, there were people calling me, and I had a publicist, and I was going all around you know, the West Coast, because at that time, I wouldn't fly, um, <laughs> and doing book book signings and it was great i mean it was it was fun and it did very well that's exciting and then of course that you know the for me the whole time you're telling that story i'm thinking this is a great story and the 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 undercurrent for me was you you didn't even plan on publishing no the book. Uh-uh. how does that i mean well again I, I have a bunch of questions but how do you even well i'll start here for anybody who's ever sat down to write a book it's you know it's uh it's work it's a lot yeah. of work to sit uh-huh. down and write a book, and so so, so the motivation for for I would uh, you know <laughs> present co- company excluded the, the the motivation is I want to publish this and you know get a writing career off the ground. So where did the motivation come to write a novel if it you're was, not looking to publish it? It was really it's it's actually okay. I got to bring it back and get you all teary eyed. <laughs> um, it was the height of the plague years, which is what we refer to the AIDS years. Okay, um, it was a horrible situation. Um, Kids today, people today who didn't live through it, straight people mm-hmm. who lived at the time, can't imagine what it was like. We didn't have a test for it. Oh, wow. We didn't have an effective medication. Mm-hmm. You, every day of your life, you woke up in the morning wondering if this was the day mm-hmm. that you were going to begin to die. Wow. And there was a whole generation of people. And, and, and AIDS, in a kind of back Bass Ackward Way did some amazing things for the gay community. First of all, the gay community was always very insular and always very segmented. Um, um, Twinkie boys like me, muscle boys like me, gym rats like me did not have the time to spend with drag queens. I mean, we went to a drag show maybe twice a year for fun. Uh-huh. Um, leather men scared us. <laughs> um, we, we were very parceled. Lesbians hello, we would go running into the sea to avoid a lesbian. Okay, I mean, it was just terrifying. We just were very segmented. And what AIDS did, and mostly thanks to the lesbian community, which wasn't as as segmented, um, is it brought the whole community together. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the girls came and... And and jumped on to 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 the gay community and and when we because we we were not organized we were you know we didn't we were we were having fun we were at Fire Island yeah. you know the girls were starting graphic arts arts companies and making millions you know we were on Fire Island you know partying <laughs> it was just the way it was and and so it was in the in the midst of all that and people were dying I mean mm. we lost I lost some very 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 dear friends to AIDS mm. um. um and, and related illnesses. And it didn't matter. I mean, I, I, I lost people who, I, to this day, I don't know whether they died of AIDS. But oh, wow. you just sort of assume. Yeah. You know? Um, especially in the theater. And, and what I realized was um, that the community, and I'm, I'm very intensely, for all my fluffiness, I'm very intensely a gay rights advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very, very core to my being. Um, I realized that the community, and by extension the world, had lost something more than just the talent. We had lost our Michael Bennett's. We had um, 
we had lost our, our Rock Hudsons. Mm. I mean, we had lost people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, our Liberacci's for lack of, you know, uh, uh, even though he Lee never came out. Um, we'd lost a tremendous amount of talent and a tremendous amount of art. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but more importantly than that, I thought, we'd lost our sense of humor. Mm. And I grew up with camp humor. I grew up with Nick and Nora Charles and Asta. Uh-huh. Um, I grew up with Betty Davis and Tula Bankhead. Um, and, and when other kids, you know, remember zombie movies and, and things like that from their youth, I remember, you know, Lucille Ball and Tula Bankhead and, and, and Tula Bankhead turning around and saying, you know, I've been thrown out of better places than this. And Lucy turning around and saying, you've never been in better places than like this. I mean, that type of camp humor. I mean, that was the stuff that I, that I remember. Uh-huh. And I felt that we were losing our sense of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wrote Bike Club uh, as, a, as a kind of um, tribute to camp humor. And it is. It's Nick and Nora Charles with a little bit of Cole Porter mm-hmm. and fangs. <laughs> um, and that's what Bike Club is. And, and I wrote it very deliberately because I, I wanted to retain our sense of humor. And nobody really does what I do except maybe David Sedaris. Okay. You know, people don't write camp humor anymore. They don't get it. Um, and I think it's a terrible, terrible waste because it's this rich cultural heritage, mm-hmm. you know. And that's why I wrote it. And so, so when you wrote it, so you say that you weren't looking to publish it, but was it something you were going to, I guess, share with maybe friends, or how did you, or was that even, were you even thinking about that? I, 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 there was no thought whatsoever <laughs> in my mind about that. I there was it was really was no goal. I just needed to get it out yeah. on paper. I mean, that's I'm, honestly, I think that's great because it's sort of, <clears throat> and that, it's it's a. Uh, it's sort of like the, the the purest form of creativity, I would say. You're not thinking about, uh, not thinking about money or profits. You're not thinking about sort of a, a publishing career. Just sort of this this pure sort of telling a creative story because this is you know, uh, you know the it, it's the it's it's the, the the best story that you're driven to. Well, it was driven. Write. Driven yeah. is a good word, and and I think it was driven. I think I did Bike Club in four and a half months. Oh wow. Um, I mean, it was it was sh- it was not the shortest book I've ever written in terms of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually wrote one in four days. Um, <laughs> oh wow. But um, uh, Bike Club was it was it was one of the shortest, and it was it was driven, and I think it also I think I was saying a lot with Bike Club, mm-hmm. and I think I think part of the reason Harry took me. Because Harry, I wrote in two stages. I wrote it in a fairly short uh, six month, and then I took some time off and then finished it up. Okay. And I think that part of that was because I, I said a lot of what I needed to say mm-hmm. in Bike Club. Um, and, and I think Bike Club works on so many different levels. Um, and, and, and I was doing things with Bike Club. I mean, this sounds terribly pretentious, and it, it probably is, but. Okay. Doesn't mean it's not true. No, it doesn't mean it's not true. Um, I was doing so many things because I didn't know you weren't supposed to not do them. Okay. Um, example, one of the things I satirized with Bike Club was the very style of the book. The way the book is written is a satire. And people go, huh? And then they read it. And television people get it immediately. It's a send-up of how you used to shoot a three-camera sitcom. Oh, interesting. And if you read all the scenes... They're all that that third person uh, uh, omniscient God character that the author is yeah. the author's voice is a director in a booth, <laughs> and you can actually see the cameras um, changing 
uh, it's a three camera shoot. And I know that sounds really complicated. And ninety nine and nine tenths percent of the people read it and don't even get it, yeah. and it's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't. But those one or few people say, "Got it." You know, I actually had a friend of mine who was a director for CBS. Um, and he said, you know, the weird thing about reading Bike Club, he said, was, and this is right after it came out, he said, you know, I kind of felt like I was at, at work in the booth. And I went, oh. I said, was like, Ron, <laughs> you awesome. got it, you know. That's, That's really awesome. Cool. Well, okay, so, so you mentioned it works on a couple of different levels. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I was, wanted to ask you about, well, one of my, one of my uh, very favorite things about the, the horror genre, whether I'm writing in it or just watching a movie, is that it does have the ability to, put, to, to play on different levels. Like a horror store can be a great metaphor for any number of things. Like right this second, I'm thinking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how in that show it, it's sort of campy and it's horror, but a lot of the horror it becomes this metaphor for these these kids and they're in high school and the, the whatever challenges a kid faces in high school and instead it's a vampire or demon or something of that nature. Um, but another another common thing I see a lot with horror, especially, probably as much in the movies as anywhere else, is that horror and comedy very much seem to be... They, they seem to have sort of a... They, they they say they go naturally together, and I think a lot of people, even if they don't realize it, well, like when when hopes when hopes. Yeah, See, yeah. I think Buffy, I think Joss Whedon for Buffy, I think Joss was writing high camp, mm-hmm. very high camp, and people think camp humor is is a guy dressed up in women's clothes, Milton Berle. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. High camp is is Cole Porter. Okay, I mean it's 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 Noel Coward. That's high camp, and I think that to a certain extent, Joss Whedon was writing that. Um, when you're asking about comedy, really interesting. Um, no. <laughs> he said he said um and what i mean by no is that um there are there is a strong contingent and i know i'm going to get reamed for this saying this um in the horror community that firmly believes that there is no place for humor in horror period that horror needs to take itself seriously mm-hmm. to the point where when um when trouble with harry which is the the boy but the boy, the boy club, the bad, bad, nah, talk much. When the trouble with Harry, which is the sequel to Bike Club, was up for the Stoker, uh, it wasn't. No, actually, it wasn't up for the Stoker. It was. I have to say this properly. It was shortlisted for the nomination. Okay, was what it was. Um, but it was, you know, uh, one of the various contenders at some level. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a fairly, actually, two fairly prominent people in the horror community tell me that not only were they not going to vote for it, but they would not deign to read it. Oh, wow. Because, oh. quote, um, uh, let, me, let me get this right, um, horror has no business being funny, unquote, as one of them said. <laughs> wow. Um, and was very, very, and it's interesting because one of, one of the people who said it was, it was actually a man and a woman, not, not in the same person, obviously. <laughs> but uh, the woman is, is actually a very funny person. Someone I like very much, but she believes very strongly that there that the two nary the two shall meet, and I think there's a prejudice. I mean, trying to get people to read my work when I first kind of um, burst onto the horror scene, and I do tend to burst onto things, <laughs> um, was really rough. Um, uh, Peter Straub read it immediately. Oh, uh, not, wow. not Peter Straub. I'm sorry. Peter Straub is one is one thinking. Uh, Whitley Strieber, okay. not, not not Peter. Uh, Whitley Strieber read it immediately. I didn't even know Whitley when he read this, the the cool. story, the book, and he was just a huge fan. And he's a great guy, but he was kind of out of the mainstream at the time yeah. uh, because of uh, what was it, reunion or or whatever the 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 the, um, the abduction books were. Okay. Um, um, but um, uh, Whitley had read it, and um, I think Karen Taylor had read it. Uh, she was the Deirdre Griffin 
uh, series. And I, I was a huge fan of Karen's. I met her at a book signing, and I was like, she never forgave me because I, 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 I said, wait, Karen E. Taylor? Deirdre Griffin, I'm sitting next to you. She was like, yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, I've been reading you for like a million years. And she was like, I'm not that old. <laughs> um, but um, so Whitley read it. But then getting people who were like friends of mine to read it were like pulling teeth. Oh, yeah. I had to bet. I mean, I adore Dallas, Jack Ketchum. I, he's one of the sweetest, most wonderful men in the world. And he's like this incredibly talented writer. And I think my husband's half in love with him. And... Um, <laughs> It took me like three years to get Dallas to read the book. And and when he did, he said, oh, my God. Because he was like, well, I don't do humor, and vampires aren't my thing. And then he, he said to me, he paid me the highest compliment. He looked me right in the, air, in the eye over his scotch and his cigarette, and he said, you know how you're very funny. <laughs> and it was like this great compliment. But getting, getting people to read me yeah. in the business was very, very tough. Yeah. Because I'm funny and I'm gay. Right. You know, and even getting fellow gay writers to read me um, was brutal. I mean, I know my uh, uh, Michael Rouse read me. Okay, um, I suspect that Lee Thomas may have read me, mm -hmm. but I mean, I know Doug Clegg hasn't read me. You know, mm -hmm. the, even the gay writers um, sometimes don't. It's really, really rough. Yeah, that's. I, I kind of. I, I I I think I've had a sort of a similar experience over the years of you know because I I have a, just a, just the one novel out inside the outside, and it's I've I don't want to say that I've <laughs> I was gonna say I've I've given up on trying to get people to read it who who haven't read it who maybe are, are friends or family, but I have found that I've I've gotten comfortable with the idea that the for the most part the 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 the, the readers whether they're just um, readers, reviewers, um, book bloggers, whatever, the people who have found it, the people who are most enthusiastic about it uh, almost are almost always people that I've never met in real life, people that I've never seen face-to-face, -face, and they're the most excited about it. And I've gotten pretty comfortable with that, that, you know, the people who are going to fall in love with it are going to find it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I could probably make a list in my head of people who I've known for a long time who... Uh, who haven't read who haven't read it and maybe never will read it. And at this point, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that, you know. Well, I think it's two things. It's interesting. Um, I was talking to, um, uh, I forget who it was. It may have been Lisa Morton. Um, and I remember, uh, I think it was Lisa. She said, um, I don't have time to read anything unless people are asking me for a blurb. That's interesting. Which is kind of neat um, yeah. in a weird way yeah. um, and kind of upsetting in another way. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, and then, and then, Getting back to, I won't go into details, okay. uh, but getting back to one of the reasons why I left home at 16, um, the book was out for three or four years, um, and she had gotten a manuscript earlier because I was looking for her approval before my mother read it, mm -hmm. um, and she read a couple of chapters, and she called me, and she said, oh, I like your book very much. It's just wonderful, blah, blah, with that kind of insincere kind of, you know, <laughs> Uh, stuff, and um, then about three or four months later, I got a call from her, um, apologizing and saying, you know, I really have to apologize. I lied when I told you I liked your book, and um, I was like, oh, okay, mom, thanks. Um, and her answer to that was, um, it's funny, and I didn't realize it was funny. I thought it was supposed to be a great work of literature, so I was kind of, you know, caught off guard. And I was just saying it because you're my son, but. Then I went back and I realized it was funny and she said, and I really liked it. 
you know, and it's kind of like one of the only really nice things she ever said, you know. Um, but it was, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of weird trying to get people that I have known for years. And and you know, I write paranormal romance as well. Um, and and you're laboring under under two obstacles there. One is getting people who you like and who you've known for years and who are members of your family to read it. Right. And and the other obstacle is not really wanting them to read it because yes. they're fuck books. Right. I mean, their their mind tend to be very well written, very literate yeah. fuck books, but um, you know, that's the goal of a paranormal erotic romance. Yeah, when I when I was uh you know, writing my book and when it was kind of getting ready to put it out, it was it's um it's I mean it, it's a horror novel. It deals with, well I mean, it's uh it, it has you know gay and lesbian themes, but it also has some really like violent stuff. There's some some sort of a uh, there's some uh, erotic threads that go through it. And I remember thinking like as I was getting ready to put the book out, not not even I wasn't I don't know how I wasn't too concerned, but I remember thinking to myself, you know I if after the book comes out, if you know half of my family decides to to disown me, I, I won't be too caught off guard. I was actually sort of prepared for not only my family i was nervous i wasn't sure i, I wasn't making a a, a a terribly conscious effort to push the envelope but i knew that i was writing in certain taboo corners and i and i had a feeling that i had a really strong feeling that a lot of people were going to either dislike the book or they were going to dislike me for writing it and i was even even before it was out in the days before i i put it out i was bracing myself for you know uh, whatever, whatever horrible backlash was going to come, and uh, what actually happened, I was kind of blindsided by the the initial, uh, the initial people who who were reading it, and even that was, um, that was a chore just getting people to read it at all because I had no track record, nobody knew who I was, and this was my first book, but people were reading it, and uh, and the, and the feedback was really nice, and I actually started getting comfortable with people liking it. That um, what eventually happened is that. As the book became successful and it found a larger audience, the more people that read it, I started. Then I started to, to either read reviews or hear things that I expected to hear, which were some of them were you know harsh or mean spirited, but stuff that I was the stuff that I was expecting to hear, like you know, like a year kind of before I put it out. But I was I was going to say actually, um, and I don't I don't even know if I'm trailing off topic, but uh, your book uh, Bike Club, which you were kind enough to bring me a copy of. Uh, I, I realized after uh, after the first time that we, I was going to say after the first time we met, I don't know if we like officially met at the HWA meeting, but I, I was at uh, the, the Horror Writers Association meeting a, a couple months ago, and um, I feel like we met because you were such a strong presence there, but I realized, I don't know if we actually officially met. When I was a kid, I, I, I read this line, I think it was in Darwin, it says, nature abhors a vacuum, and I've been trying to fill a vacuum. <laughs> I have that uh, kind of personality, <laughs> uh, but, but it was such a it was such a strong and not 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 just a strong personality, but it was a like I left feeling like I knew you a little bit, and so so I um so I I, I was looking into your uh your um your books once I got home, and I saw Bike Club, and even though I hadn't read it before, I was like I I know this book. Where, why the fuck do I know this book? I've never I've never met Hal. How do I know this book? And so, as best as I could put together, I'm fairly certain that our books must have been, um, we must have been at some point on on the Amazon bestseller list at the same time in gay and lesbian horror fiction. Maybe, yeah. Something because I saw it, and I was like, "That's so weird." Like, I, 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 but anyway, but now I have a now I look forward to reading it. But so I, so so between 
knowing that I saw your book somewhere and uh, and, and feeling like I uh, I met you. even sitting down right now, I feel like uh, this doesn't feel like our first conversation. No, it's it's interesting. David Lord, uh, who I adore, I just adore David Lord. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. He wrote Bound in Flesh, uh, um, Bound in Blood um, for Kensington, uh, and he's an old friend of mine. He's a really nice guy. Um, and he once said that the thing about reading my... David was actually one of the people who did read me uh, in the early years. Um, and he said one of the things that he loved about my work, and I think it's true in a weird sort of way, um, is that uh, reading it is like sitting and talking to me hmm. um, because it kind of comes at you. Of course, it's it's much more literate than I am speaking because I have time to actually massage the words but right. and he said it's 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 kind of like and 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 Charlie Colliott who's another great writer who I adore who I actually used to room with at, at uh, the Northeast Writers Conference okay. Charlie says it's like it's like listening to me he says whenever he's he's missing his house his missing his howl fix he just picks up a copy and reads a couple pages cuz like me um and and I think there's there's a certain truth to that I yeah. think my voice is really strong and what David Lord said was he said that that reading me is like being with me um and this is, of course, 10 years ago before I got old and fat, um, <laughs> it's like sort of having a picnic with a big bouncy golden retriever on a train track while the locomotive's coming at you. <laughs> and, I, and I think in a weird sort of way, that's kind of accurate. Um, that's kind of the way I am, and it's kind of the way I write. Yeah. Um, I, I, I did, because uh, I, I was on your website. You have, actually, for anybody listening who doesn't have a, a Hal's book, you can they, they can go to your website and read the first chapter. Of yes, that's... Uh, uh, wehovampire.com So I, I was able to read uh, the, the first couple of pages and, and so I, I at least got a, an idea of, a, of the writing voice and everything you're saying uh, as far as I'm concerned is completely accurate in terms of uh, how you're describing the book. Now one thing I was thinking about so you so you were uh, an entertainment lawyer for, for 20 years um, you, you, know, you wrote Bike Club without any real intention of publishing it before you wrote it did you have was there or what am I saying? How, at what point did you find that you had aspirations to be a writer at all? Was it when you wrote Bike Club, or was it? Oh no, under that? undergrad, undergrad. See, it's weird. I come from I came from a very, very, very dysfunctional family, and a very wealthy family. Mm -hmm. um, and people have this idea that um, when you grow up in a wealthy family, that you um, that you don't feel pain mm. because you you're you're in a lot of ways. I understand why the Menendez brothers didn't just leave <laughs> because in a weird sort of way, you're trapped by that because right. you're not prepared. Um, and so when I went to college, I always knew I, I, was, I was an actor when I was a kid. I was a child actor okay. and I did very well. Um, and I, I always wanted to do something creative. I mean, that was what my soul, my gut told me to do. Yeah. But you just didn't do that. You, you were... Um, um, you, you just didn't. I mean, I, I thought I would compromise for a while and become an agent because that was sort of um, more respectable. At least you worked in an office okay. as opposed to on a stage. Um, and the response of the family was, well, you're just going to be a 10 percenter all your life. They were very disdainful. Mm -hmm. um, even when I would go out and, and actually be on stage and do a show where I made a lot of money, mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was considered something that was kind of um, distasteful. Mm. Um, and so when I went to school, um, when I went to Rutgers, obviously I was going to become a doctor mm -hmm. because that's what you did, period. Um, and there was no choice, and I was very bright. 
Um, and I love science. I mean, I love learning for the sake of learning. Mm -hmm. And when I got into college, I just it just wasn't happening for me. I wasn't interested in it anymore. I was I was bored. I was I, I didn't want to sit and learn about cells. I I'd learned about cells in high school. If I was going to do science, I wanted to be out there, you know, uh, manipulating DNA. I mean, I was you know a little <laughs> little little bit of um, a Michael Crichton in me at right. that point. I went to create dinosaurs. Um, and I, I, I kind of got back into the theater because it was easy and because that was what I was more comfortable with. And I think that my Bachelor of Fine Arts um, was in playwriting. Okay. And I was churning out a play um, in, the, in the Bachelor of Fine Arts program at Mason Gross um, for Betty Comtois. I think I was churning out a two-act play every two weeks. Oh, wow. Um, for like three years. So, so I got into that's that's how I started writing. Okay. I mean, that's how that's how I got into it. Um, and I, I was never one of these people that kept journals, mm -hmm. um, or 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 I know people that say, well, you know, I, I had to write about it and it moved me. That was never the re <laughs> I never wrote because of that. Yeah, I always wrote because to tell stories. Yeah, uh, because I thought they'd be fun stories to tell. And then I think all of the internal, you know, uh, the touchy feely stuff mm. comes out. In, in subtext, yeah. But I, I was never. I don't understand poets. I mean, I know some. <laughs> I know some wonderful poets. I mean, I mean, uh, Linda Addison uh, is is a wonderful poet. Um, um, uh, uh, Stan Rice, Chris Rice's father, was a wonderful poet. Um, but um, I just never understood poetry. It wasn't my thing. Um, I was more interested in telling a story, and then the rest of the stuff. You know the the deep troubled yeah. you know Jack Kerouac stuff. Right. Either came out or it didn't. Yeah, I I have the same point of view actually with, with writing. Is I I figure if I even in terms of when I think about uh, you know uh, like like themes or feelings or things of that nature, I always figure if I just if I just approach a story if, you know straightforward and just tell it as best as I can, all that other stuff is going to find its way in there, whether I like it to or not, and it, or whether I want it to or not. And in that way, you know. Um, it'll be it, it's going to be more organic anyway, and so sometimes I'll write. You know, I, I might write a, a first draft, and it's not a, it's not until maybe I get to the end of it and start looking at it that I can start to I'll, I can start to tease out like okay, I I I kind of see what this is about in terms of what I see the stuff I was working out, but I didn't realize I was working it out. Um, one thing I was reading a, a, an interview you did. Um, I was reading it earlier today, and you'd mentioned that. Uh, well, of course, as a novelist, you're writing stories, but for you, you're sort of a you write character first, and the story kind of comes out of that. Where, like, like for me, I'm sort of the opposite. Where I, um, oh, I can't, I can't plot worth a shit. Yeah, like I'll, I'll plot out a story, and then like what I do is I plot out a story, and then as I plot it out, that sort of dictates what what characters need to be there. But you're the opposite. You know, yeah. I was hoping you Lisa, could talk. Lisa Morton and I have had the, these discussions um, uh, a couple of times because Lisa works. Completely backwards from the way I work. Um, it's it's really interesting uh, the way we work. Uh, uh, my um, m mine is a more tumultuous process, um, I think, uh, than most writers. Um, I think it's more. I I, th I mean, I think all writing is organic, but I think that that I um, I don't I don't like to give the impression of the tortured artist. Right. Um, because when it's right for me, it's not tortured at all. Oh yeah. I wrote in Flesh and Stone, which is you know the the the, the romance piece. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote it in four days. That's I mean, incredible. and it came out of the head onto the page, and I think there were line edits, mm. um, and it just was it just came out. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, you know the old White White Wolf uh, series, uh, White Wolf the gaming series. That's I mean, it's it's not uncommon. Uh, Stefan Petrushka, who I met uh, years ago at Nikon at Northeast Writers Conference, had written a a um, 
uh, a vampire novel for Vampire the Masquerade that takes place in like some Middle Eastern society in like the 1400s or the 1500s. And Stefan had, um, he had, he was very ill at the time. I think he had like pneumonia or something. Okay. And he had no background. Um, and he just went to the library and wrote the thing in three days. That's Because he was on deadline, you yeah. know. So, I mean, it's not that unusual. <laughs> yeah. But, and I was always like, wow, when he told me that. <laughs> um, but um, um, I think that um, the way I work is, is much different. Um, I used to get an idea and sit down and, and zip. It all starts with character for me. Um, the problem is that you, the way I work, you can get 30, 40 pages into a novel. And you can say, this is wonderful stuff. It's character study. It's mm-hmm. not a novel. Mm-hmm. And you have to throw it out. And that's very difficult. And, and, and for as out there and, and, and wild as I am, I'm very conservative. And I'm very conservative both politically and artistically. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is um, not that I won't push the envelope, because I, I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, For Love of the Dead is an erotic romance that starts out with a necrophilia scene, which is just not done. And I did it because it was not done and it worked. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of the rest of that book didn't work, but that worked. <laughs> um, so what I do is I start out with character. Um, and, and, but I'm a firm believer that you, you can't just vomit or ejaculate onto a page. Right. I mean, I'm sure if you've read the stuff that I've written in various other interviews, I'm a really, really strong proponent of learning, of people going out there and learning what constitutes a sentence. Oh, yeah. Um, learning that there's a subject and a predicate. And learning, you know, when you're using a dependent clause as an independent clause. I have actually been known to diagram sentences, um, <laughs> which they don't even teach anymore. Yeah. And there are times when I've been struggling with a paragraph that I want to say something and I know what I want to say and I can't get to it and I can't figure it out. I've, I've diagrammed sentences and gone, oh, that's the problem. Um, uh, my husband is, I mean, my hus- I'm married to the most amazing man in the world, not only because he's amazing, but because he puts up with me. Um, <laughs> but I was famous for years for saying to people, I don't do short stuff. Um, I don't do short stories. Short yeah. stories were brutal for me. I didn't understand the art form, and it is an art form. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I got asked by a bunch of people at various times as favors to do short stories. And I was, I would, I storm around, I literally storm up and down the hallway of the upper landing with my hands in my hair, pulling my hair out. Um, I mean, literally tugging on my hair like this, right? <laughs> and for the people out there in, in, in Podland, I'm showing it. Um, I can vouch for that. He really was pulling his hair. And, right, until I get an idea. Um, and sometimes it's weeks. And I'll do false starts. And, and for short work, I just did a 10,000-word a, a, a piece that I then found out had to be an 8,000-word piece, so I cut 2,000 words out of it. Um, but aside from those two thousand words, in order to get the eight thousand, the ten thousand yeah. words, I wrote forty thousand words. Oh my goodness! So you wrote like a novella, exactly. And I don't know many people that are that because it wasn't right. <laughs> it just wasn't right. It was wrong. Yeah. I had the wrong approach, and I finally pegged it. Um, I just did something for um, I did something for Eric Miller for um, uh, Hell Comes to Hollywood too, uh, the anthology. I just I, uh, it's called Hot Tub. It's about this. It's it's a really sick little time. You know, I'm a, I'm a comedy writer. People know me as a comedy writer and I keep kidding with Eric. I think you met Eric at the HWA meeting. Yeah. And I said, I said, you know, I do this really nasty kind of sick stuff for you. And he's like, yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, and it's about this, this, this haunted hot tub. It's, there's actually a genie in the hot tub. It's a gin, not one, of, not one of the blue Robin Williams genies, one of the really nasty <laughs> evil genies um, in a hot tub. And I thought I was going to get a divorce because I was making everybody crazy with this thing. Um, and then when it clicked, I wrote it in an afternoon. 
Oh, wow, yeah. Um, from start to finish. But it was lots of short bursts of and a lot of pages thrown out. Yeah. So character is really important to me. Um, I, 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 I used to be able to put characters on the page and start them talking, and mm-hmm. then they would take me places. Um, after my first husband died, and I got into retail for, I was in retail for a couple of years, I had the, the doggy store and the bird store, and I wasn't writing full-time anymore. Okay. Um, and I find that it's taken me almost a year to get to the point where at least the words are flowing again. Right. Uh, and I'm hoping that I can get back to the point where the characters take me places. Mm-hmm. Because that isn't happening right now. Okay. But it has happened all my writing career, and I hope and assume it will start to happen again in the future. Are, are you writing every day right now? Is that <sighs> Almost, yeah. Okay. Are, are you sometimes it's a paragraph. Sometimes I can get ten thousand words in a day. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll if I'm on a on a on a roll, I'll run. I mean, I wrote this Christian Troy short called uh, Tolerance, which is a really kind of satiric piece. Um, it's like ten thousand words. I think I wrote it in two days. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I want to get to your book sure. uh, a little bit out of order, but I figure it's it's, it's connected. Fine. So we'll talk about the trouble with Harry because that's sort of that's as you mentioned that's the sequel to the yeah. Bike Club. So The Trouble with Harry, this one uh, uh, published in February of 2012. And then uh, that was the the print. The digital format came out in uh, December of 2013. So here's a synopsis for The Trouble with Harry, which again is a a sequel to Bite Club. Something not quite human stalks the city streets under the full moon after the gay bars close. As the ravaged corpses start piling up, coroner Becky O'Brien and her unlikely allies realize They are the only defenders who can protect scores of unsuspecting pretty boys from a grisly, bone-crunching death by werewolf. Welcome back to West Hollywood, where the drinks aren't the only things that are stiff. Get ready to howl with laughter under a full moon when Becky, her best friend Christopher Driscoll, who happens to be the city's resident vampire, and his quirky boyfriend Troy battle to save West Hollywood's hottest men from a vicious monster's hunger. Uh, <laughs> that sounds uh, pretty terrific. You were also kind enough to give me a copy of uh, the Trouble with Harry, so I look forward uh, to reading both of those. So, so the, the it's actually it's actually a better book. Bike Club is a first novel, and mm-hmm. and I read it. You know, I think when you go back to your first novel, as you will find, you will cringe. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah. So this one, okay. So in terms of uh, in terms of the timeline, well, the, okay, it's published in 2012. When did you uh, write the write this book? I wrote the first, uh, uh, most of Harry uh, coming right off of Bike Club, right after Bike Club's publication. Okay. Um, so I, I started writing it about 2005, 2006, and then I didn't write for a couple of years full-time for a variety of reasons. One was um, when Bike Club came out, um, it was so successful, I didn't have time to write. Oh, wow. Um, I was it's still... It's a good problem to have. Yeah, I'm, I, it was, I mean, I was all over the place. I, was, I had the retail store, I think, by that time. Uh, yeah, I did have the retail store by that time. So I was working in the retail store, but I was constantly running all over, you know, hell and tarnation, as they used to say, <clears throat> making appearances. I once sold 200 copies of a bike club in about 10 minutes. That's incredible. Because I was at a, a, a some event, and I was just feeling kind of weird. And so I got up. I, st- I can't believe I did that. Oh, I, got- I was younger then. I was thinner, too, so I could do this. <laughs> I stood up on top of a table at this book fair, and I announced to the people around me, that anybody who bought a copy of Bike Club within the next like twenty minutes or half hour, I would inscribe it as Tallulah Bankhead, <laughs> and so I did. I you know best of luck Tallulah Bankhead, 
And so, and I sold like a whole bunch of these books, signing them as Tallulah Bankhead. And for those of you who are under the age of, who don't, you know, remember the Nixon administration, she was like this big, big actress in like the 40s and 50s. Okay. Um, she, she, she had this very deep voice. You know, she, she was on Batman. She played the Black Widow. Okay. Die, Bat, darling, die. <laughs> I love her. She was great. And, um, and the funny thing was, like five or six years later, a couple years ago now, I saw a copy of Bike Club, you know, inscribed by author as to Lil Bankhead for like $175 on freaking eBay. <laughs> you know. That's awesome. But, but I didn't have time to do a lot, of, a lot of writing. And I was working, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I stopped practicing law. Um, and the great thing about practicing law is it's, it's soul-sucking to a certain extent um, um, because it's not very creative, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, in the way that you like to be creative. But it's, it's very good money. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay, so so you you started writing it uh, about that time because actually one of the things I was going to ask you about was the um, not so much continuity but say I, like I wasn't sure like if you picked up these characters ten years it later takes, it takes ta- no it takes place about three or four months later okay uh, 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 bike club takes place at Halloween mm-hmm. um, ish and actually a little bit longer than that and um, trouble with Harry takes place at um, uh, Gay Pride, which is in July, which is really funny because in Mummy Dearest, which is a book that I've been working on forever, um, because it's it's huge. I mean, it's a behemoth, and <laughs> it just needs to be cut. Mm-hmm. And there's some some problems with it. It's done. Um, the fans have been screaming for it, but I just after my first husband died, it took the stuffing out of me. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, but there's a lovely line where one of the characters in in the trouble with hair with uh, not trouble with Harry in Mummy Dearest, um, when there's a new monster in town. Um, and she says, um, she's a little, she's the old lady with the, with the foul mouth. And she says, you know, Halloween, gay pride, do not tell me we're going to go through this every fucking holiday, <laughs> you know? And there's, that's kind of a theme because uh-huh. it's another holiday and they're, they're just, I forget what holiday that is, but something happened. Did you find that, um, was it, uh, what am I asking? Did, did you find that it was difficult to say, to get back into the world of these characters or was it, was it? Was it easy to slip back into them, or did you have to go back and review the bike club? And- Part of the reason I'm avoiding cleaning up Mummy is because I think you have to be in. The, as you, if you read Bike Club and you read Harry, I think there's a certain wackiness, there's a certain carefreeness, mm-hmm. there's a certain freedom in the the prose and the way the thing happens, and I think you have to be there. And and, and after a losing being a widow at such a young, I was a, I was a widower at 41 or oh, 42. Wow. Jimmy died very young, very suddenly. Um, and having been in retail in Los Angeles, oh my God, <laughs> talk about sucking the joy out of your, you know, I from, can only imagine from your testicles up. I mean, it's it's horrible, horrible. Um, work at McDonald's, don't become a retail slut. Um, um, I think it's really hard for me to get back into that. Um, and so I've been avoiding it because I, I'm I'm almost kind of afraid that I won't be able to be that carefree and that joyous. Yeah. And the writing in Bike Club and in, in The Trouble with Harry is very joyous. I mean, these characters, just, I mean, especially characters like Troy and Pamela Berman, they come in from left field because they're free. There's a, there's a freedom yeah. that comes in. I mean, they say things, they do things that, that shock the shit out of me. <laughs> so I didn't intend it. That being said... When I just wrote Tolerance, which I just wrote for somebody, which is a 10,000-word piece, short piece for somebody, um, I, I had an idea that I had been toying with forever, which was um, 
I'll tell you a little bit about it, so I don't. It's not, I won't spoil it. But okay. it's uh, um, in, in California. I don't know if you've noticed that sometimes we have these really weird things like donut shop and dry cleaner. Yes, you, you find them in the valley. Yeah. Or uh, my favorite was massage parlor and bait shop, which was a real place out on Van Nuys. And so I thought um, um, it'd be cool to have a, a yogurt shop and barbecue. <laughs> um, which isn't quite as outre, but I thought, wouldn't it be really cool if it was owned by a real ogre um, <laughs> who eats children and who kind of doesn't get why that's a problem? Um, and so I said it in this Chris and Troy world, in, uh-huh. this, in this bike club world. And, and that being said, I was, in, I was there in that world in an hour. I mean, I, I, I opened it up, I wrote the first page, and suddenly they were right back where they needed to be. Um, and and what's interesting about the the, the, the the West Hollywood novels is that Chris and Troy were never intended to be the first the, the main characters, mm-hmm. and they're known as the Chris and Troy books. Um, they actually come into Bike Club three quarters of the way through. They don't they're not main characters, um, and yet they kind of took over everything. Um, and they were never intended to be gay books. They were intended to be gay sensibility taking place in a gay town. Mm-hmm. But the 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 three main characters of of both of Bike Club and The Trouble with Harry are straight people. There's the middle-aged um, compulsive overeater Jewish coroner, uh-huh. um, and I wrote her to be a fat action hero. That's what <laughs> I wanted. Um, um, there's the little old lady, um, the city manager, Pamela Berman. There's the captain of the, of the sheriff's department, who I wrote basically for Danny Glover. Oh, wow. um, cool. That's the character. And, and, and the, 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 the gay characters came in later. Uh-huh. And, and part of the fun of Bike Club is the fact that Here you've got vampires and werewolves uh, and mummies and monsters and ghouls and demons um, coming to the city and trying desperately to fit in because they have to to survive. Mm. I mean, if somebody finds out about them, they're they're staked. Mm -hmm. And they've come into a city which is, in real life, possibly one of the more bizarre cities in the world (laughs) because of the way things... Every bit of political stuff in the West Hollywood novels is absolutely 100% rooted in, in, in reality. Okay. From the city being a cruelty-free zone officially mm-hmm. for ficus trees <laughs> to having for quite a while Baby the Dead Dog Day. Okay? <laughs> I mean, all of these... But to criminal... Uh, it became illegal to have styrofoam in the city for a while. I mean, oh, nowadays with this... With, I mean, nowadays, this is back in the in the in the in the nineties. Don't forget, uh-huh. it was insane that you would ever not be able to smoke in your own apartment. I mean, who would have thought? Nowadays, people actually consider it. Back then, it was nuts. Okay, not being able to sell jelly inside city limits unless you could prove that the jelly was picked by union grape pickers. <laughs> I mean, West Hollywood was, was nuts. Um, and so here, are these these monsters coming to the city and trying to be normal, quote-unquote, right. having no clue that the pond they're trying to, to, to use as their camouflage is anything but normal. <laughs> and that's where the fun comes in, because, because the sensible, normal characters in this are the monsters. Yeah. They're not the real people. The near people are crazy. And, <laughs> and the only gay characters in it are the monsters. Okay. And there's a metaphor. I mean, obviously. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, that type of thing. I don't beat you over the head with it, but it's there. But it's insane. And, and I did that deliberately. I did that very deliberately. Now, uh, with Bike Club, you said that you, you know, like you, you, had, you, were, you were driven uh, to write this, uh, you know, the, to, to engage in this creative project uh, because of something that you felt was sort of uh, draining or, or lacking in the, mm-hmm. in the gay community. 
Uh, what was then the inspiration for uh, the trouble with Harry? Um, two, two things. One, the story wasn't finished. <laughs> the story definitely was not finished. I had so much fun. And I didn't find Chris and Troy until three quarters of the way through the book. Okay. You know, and I wanted, they were, they were, they were so rich, some wonderful things to do with them. And they, they do in Harry. They're lovely. Um, um, I also wanted to do werewolves. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tanya Huff. Okay. Um, and Tanya did vampire, werewolf, mummy, Frankenstein. You know, mm-hmm. she did she did with with um, with her series. And and I was one of the, one of the highlights of my my career uh, was um, uh, when Tanya and I were both up for the um, the Spectrum Award, um, which was great. And and Tanya won. <laughs> the awesome. bitch no um no i was like thrilled i mean she she won i was like yeah. if anyone was going to be it was going to be on tiny up who was like an inspiration um um but but the story wasn't done and i and i felt there was more to it and there's more fun to it yeah uh, and there was a lot of material that i didn't use in the first book that i wanted to use okay um and there was a character in the first book who i actually got more fan mail from than any other character scotty the ghoul he's mm-hmm. a minor character and and i knew he was important and he, the function the role he played um, in the trouble with Harry, became filled with the werewolf. It'd be, okay. it'd be, that that's who that character became. Okay. You know, and I, I used to call them the five dummies, and they, they need to be the six dummies, and <laughs> and that that's what they are. Now, so it's so this is sort of a so it's become like, yeah, as you said, sort of a a, a series of books, yeah. and the fans wanted it. Yeah, because so you didn't plan it as a series. At this point, do you have do you have like other ideas yeah. for for the series? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mummy Dearest is done. It just needs to be massively rewritten. Um, I've started on the the fourth one, which is kind of a weird Frankenstein Birkin hair okay. uh, kind of thing, which is called "I've Got You Under Your Skin." Um, yeah, I mean that was that was the thing. And the, you know the other thing about why do I do it? And I joke about this, but I mean you know most people got letters. Most most authors again. Karen Taylor told me about this. I didn't believe her. You get letters uh, from from prison. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if you've had that happen no, yet, not yet no. but you all, you get letters from prison with prisoners. They first they start asking you if they could have copies of your book, and then at some point they end up asking you for photographs. <laughs> and I always I always teased Karen that I'm going to have put her head on my naked body, and she just laughs. But um, I would get letters from prisoners that sort of threatened me if I didn't write another book. <laughs> it was kind of cool. That, that's a that's a and, and probably a threat you, you you want to take seriously anyway. Yeah, but also flattering. Yeah, also flattering. Yeah. Uh, well, you have a couple more books. I figure we can cover. Sure. Um, not to, so as not to cut your uh, bibliography short. Uh, so we'll go with the uh, In Flesh and Stone, which is a novel that you published in uh, 2009. It was put out by Ravenous Romance. Yes. And uh, here's a, here's a synopsis for In Flesh and Stone. Now this is a romance, not a horror book. Okay. And not a comedy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, world-renowned painter Alex Reston seems to have everything a man could want: wealth, youth, a beautiful face, and an amazing body. But his lover Tony is dying of a mysterious illness and the doctors are baffled. In desperation, Alex, Alex turns to the Zodiac men, 12 statues of spectacular naked men decorating Alex's home in a converted old library building. Grief turns to obsession. Every moment of Alex's life becomes filled with fantasies of the statues, dark fantasies, sexual fantasies. However, while Alex desperately seeks to be with his lover once again, the Zodiac men are working their magic. So this this isn't... So God, that sounds tawdry. <laughs> <laughs> so you say it's not horror. How would you uh, how would you describe it's, it? It's uh, it's a romance. Um, uh, Lori Perkins uh, came to me and she said she was starting out with Ravenous, Ravenous Romance and we knew each other. And 
she I didn't have an agent at the time, and Lori and I had been, kind of been talking about it. And she said, Write me, write me, write me a romance. I want you to write me a romance. Um, and I said, Lori, I don't know anything about romance. And I wrote this, she says, Paranormal romance is right up your alley. And I'm like, Yeah, right. And so I wrote this 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 weird heterosexual piece, and I, I gave like the first 15 pages to Lori. And she called me and she said, how dear, she said, this is just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? And she said, why don't you write what you know? Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you don't know anything about it. She said, you don't even, I think she, I think Lori may have been the one who said, you don't even know what the mechanics are, do you? And I went, uh, no. <laughs> I, I actually was sick in health class when they went over that and I never bothered to learn it. And God knows I've never seen it. Um, so she said, you know, do mail mail. It's okay. I said, you're kidding. She said, no. And so I dicked around with it for a while. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do this. And two or three months, and Lori had said to me, you know, when am I getting that book? And I'm like, oh. And I was sitting around one day, and the first line of the book came to me, um, um, which was, I think it's, it's, it just came to me. I think the first line is, the last time Alex had seen so many beautiful naked male bodies or male genitalia or something, male dicks, male dicks, <laughs> was uh, he was uh, infinitely more active and infinitely more limber. I mean, something like that. It was, it was, a, it was a joke line. Yeah. And it came to me, and I started to write, and um, I finished the book in like three and a half, four days. Wow. Um, the book came out of me. It was the first thing I'd written after my husband died, and it's cathartic. Um, and I think it's probably in a weird sort of way, even though it's a it's a romance, it's it's pretty gritty. It's you know penises and <laughs> butts and nipples and tongues. Um, I think it's probably the most amazing thing I've ever written. It's a very poetic book. I was actually going to ask you as I was reading the the synopsis because because you mentioned you know, uh, you know being a widower, a widower mm-hmm. and that the main character in this book is dealing with the mm-hmm. with the Ill- was that an, intentional was that no. something that in, no. in retrospect you kind of I did not know what the book was about mm-hmm. I'm serious until if you if you read the book you will see there is a last two paragraphs in the book uh-huh. I had no freaking clue what the book was about until I wrote those last two paragraphs. Mm, wow. Um, it was incredibly cathartic. And the language, I mean, I'm tuning my own horn to a certain extent, but the language of Flesh and Stone is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever written anything um, uh, as beautifully written as the book is. Is there is there, a, is there a comedy in this book, or is it just... There's some lightheartedness in it, um, but it's about a guy who's who the love of his life is dying and he doesn't know why. And he's sort of quietly going insane in his own way. Okay. Um, he he moves out of, uh, they, they have a townhouse and he can't work. He's an artist. He's a visual artist. Um, and the memories are too oppressive. And so he buys, and he's very, very well known. He buys this this condo in an, uh, it's the uh, rare books room of an old library. And there are these 12 uh, statues of Zodiac men naked and gorgeous mm-hmm. because it's a ravenous romance <laughs> novel and they all have to be naked and gorgeous. Of course. Um, and, and he slowly starts to fantasize and the fantasies become real. And what I did, they can become realer. And what I did was um, I, I wanted him to learn something from every experience. Okay. Um, and so every sexual or sensual, because some of them are not sexual, they're sensual, mm-hmm. experience that he has, he processes another aspect of his lover's death. And they're not always very crystal clear. It's not Elizabeth Kubler-Roth, Five Stages of Dying. Right. Sometimes it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's general guilt, all sorts of things, and he processes them. Um, and, and, and that's how he works through it. 
Um, there are some lighthearted. There's a secondary character who's kind of like the twink. Mm-hmm. I always end up with the twink in my work, <laughs> who's really charming. Um, there's a May December romance. There's a, there's the little old lady. Uh, probably because my mother was so such a mess. Um, I always write a motherly character that's kind of like the ideal in a sort of warped okay. way. Um, not baking cookies, but <laughs> smacking you upside the head so you do the right thing with the best of intentions <laughs> right. type of woman. Right. Um, so I think there's some lightheartedness to it, but I think it's a very powerful um, piece. Uh, when I when I turned it into Lori, um, uh, what she did was she said it's it's interesting. She said um, I didn't want to read it. She said I it was it was like a Thursday night, and she said and I was exhausted, but I promised I'd get back to you by Friday. So I figured I'll read a pair a couple of chapters, and I'd tell you I read the whole thing. She was up like till three o'clock in the morning. Wow! And she called me, and she actually she called the publisher, and she in the middle of the night apparently, and she <laughs> she said we're buying this book, That's and they awesome. were like great, I'm going back to sleep. But, and when I said to her, shall I use a pseudonym? She said, uh, if you use a pseudonym, it better be Lori Perkins, which was her name because she was so. <laughs> Uh, thrilled by it. That's awesome. Um, and I got you know amazing reviews on it. I mean, people were were uh, were shocked that it was a real book and it was a real story about real people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really hot sex that yeah. was going on. Yeah. And it's also one of the problems we've had about getting one of the main romance houses mm-hmm. picking it up as a reprint. Romance houses, no matter what they say, they don't want. Stories. It's going to get me in trouble too. Saying this, <laughs> they don't want real stories. Oh, that's interesting. They want romance, formulaic stories with realistic-ish characters. Mm-hmm. But they really they don't want something that says something. They don't want novels. They want books. And I think Flesh and Stone is very much a novel. It's a very powerful novel. Yeah. Now, uh, since with your um, with Bike Club and uh, the Trouble with Harry, since they're sort of you know. Uh, as you kind of described, Mahai camp and comedy, comedy. and farce. Is there, was it, well, I, was, I, I kind of realized you already answered my first question, which was if, if you found it tricky to, to switch gears into maybe a more, a, a more serious book, but you wrote it in three or four days, so it couldn't have been that tricky. Um, but say, like mentally, did, you know, do you, have, do you have to go to a different place uh, in, your, in your imagination to write this type of book, or is it just... This is the story that I'm telling. and No, you have to be different. Like I said, Bike Club is very lighthearted. You have to be free. You have mm-hmm. to be open to write that kind of comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and all comedy comes from pain. I really believe that. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 used to, I, mean, I used to read about Abe Burroughs and, and Neil Simon and, and people writing about it, and they all said comedy comes from pain. I think it does. But I think you have to be free to write in the, in the kind of high camp, fun universe of Bike Club. Um, for Love of the Dead was uh, not for Love of the Dead. Uh, in Flesh and Stone is a far more visceral book. Mm. It came it came from someplace south of the navel and above the groin, mm-hmm. kind of in the pit of your stomach, yeah. and it just it, you know where you get sick. Yeah, um, it came from that place. Um, um, and and one of the interesting things about it, one of the joys I had, and one of the, and I did have some fun with it, although it was a painful book to write, is the fact that I've written a character who's a visual artist who doesn't see his world visually. Mm. He sees his world through a variety, for, through other senses, pre- predominantly through a sense of smell, which is really weird, <laughs> but it works beautifully. Um, he's constantly talking about what things smell like, and yeah. that's how he sees it. And I think I think all of that stuff contrived to make it just a really interesting, unusual piece. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let me. We have a, a, a one more novel that I oh, wanted dear. to talk about. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I hate and this. I hate this book. We can keep this conversation as short as you like, <laughs> but I figure we may as well bring it up. So it's uh, for the love of uh, for for love of the dead. Sorry about that. 
published in uh, November of 2011. I'll um, see read the synopsis briefly, and I'll let you say whatever you want to say about it, oh, even if it's uh, <laughs> even if you decide not to talk about it. I'll leave that. There's up always here. an ugly child. <laughs> okay, so for love of the dead. Mark Hartner has the face of an angel and the body of a young god. He is male beauty incarnate, the perfect man, the quintessential dream lover. But beneath the surface lurks the most depraved soul imaginable. Fortunately, Mark Hartner is quite, quite dead. Or is he? Reborn on a cold mortuary slab, driven by malevolent passions and unspeakable lusts, Mark Hartner is the herald of depraved, twisted beings from the beyond the grave and he is eager to raise hell to please his dark masters. From an island paradise hiding terrible secrets to the hushed and sterile halls of a small mortuary, take a darkly erotic journey like you've never known, a journey that will bring you bring a shiver to your soul and an erotic tingle to your body. Now, <laughs> the best thing about this book is the line, from an island paradise hiding terrible secrets. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, now, I, I, I guess now my friend... <laughs> Why did I write this piece of shit? No, it's actually not that bad. <laughs> why? why uh, I, I take it it's. Uh, I, I take it you're disappointed with this uh, particular book. I, I wrote. Okay, I, I wrote this book for. I wrote this book on a bet with Brian Keene and John Skip. Okay. For all you budding authors out there, never write a book on a bet. <laughs> um, they're zombie guys. Okay. I mean, Keene's like the, the 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 leading zombie guy in the world. Okay. You know, um, and John Skip is like. Number two, or you know, I mean, the two of them are as, as Chris Christopher Durang would say, the two of them will strip naked with uh, with chainsaws in a pit, and they'll fight it out to see who's <laughs> going to be the head zombie guy. Um, but um, and they were talking about zombies, and, and it was it was towards the end of the vampire erotica era, okay. and they were and zombies were getting big, and they kept saying, well, you know, there'll be no zombie erotica, and I was like, well, why not? And they were like, well, because you know, there's nothing kind of like you know great about like fucking some guy while his dick falls off, and I'm like, but. That's not what zombies are. And they're like, what are you talking about? And um, I don't have any film background mm-hmm. when it comes to horror movies because they scare me. I don't watch them. <laughs> I'm serious. I write horror, but they scare me. I believe you, yeah. So I've never seen Night of the Living Dead or anything. So for me, a zombie is not some shambling Hulk going brains. Um, when I think of a zombie, I think of the Caribbean. Okay. And I think of some absolutely magnificently gorgeous cafe au lait man with this incredible body and no soul and no personality. Got it. The extension being, I can do whatever I want Mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter. He's a piece of meat. The flip side of that is, as a zombie, anthropomorphizing it and and first-personing it, there's no afterlife. Mm -hmm. There's no accountability. I get to do whatever I want. And I love that. I love that concept. And so they bet me I couldn't write an erotic zombie novel, so I did. Second bet. (laughs) If you're never going to write a book on one bet, never write a book on two bet. Lori and I kind of bet Ravenous has some rules that you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to do bestiality. Uh You're not allowed to do pedophilia. Uh You're not allowed to do erotic rape. And you're not allowed to do necrophilia. And most romance houses have those rules. Well, what did I do? First sex scene in In Flesh and Stone is Virgo. Hello. He's a boy, (laughs) young man on the cusp of manhood. It's not pedophilia, but because he's adult age. But the sensibility is very much that kind of thing, yeah. although not in a creepy way. Okay. Okay? Um, then, of course, there's Sagittarius on the back of a horse. Bestiality, <laughs> right? And then I did a scene that's with Aries where I deliberately wrote an erotic rape scene. Okay. Uh, erotic rape being 
<clears throat> generally defined as the woman gets raped, she's screaming, she's screaming, she's screaming, and then moving through, she finds she likes it. And this is kind of verboten in, in paranormal romance and in romance novels, and rightly so. Um, it's a very male-driven attitude of, yeah, the bitch wanted it, and I don't think it's appropriate, nor do I think it's particularly realistic. Right. But in this one particular scene, I had to have that happen. I had to have that character in that first book in, in, in Flesh and Stone get involved in a, in a sexual scene where he was being overpowered and he was resisting and he, he gradually came to want it because that was the aspect that he was working through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't do necrophilia. <clears throat> and I said to Lori, I bet you I could do a necrophilia scene. And she said, no. I said, Lori, I'll take you one, 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 one further. I bet you I could do a whole book about necrophilia. She said, no, you can't. I said, yes, I can. So I went and I did it. Um, what's interesting is it opens up literally in a morgue with somebody coming in and having intercourse with the corpse. <laughs> Not only a corpse, a corpse that's been fairly disgustingly autopsied. <laughs> um, you, you giggle because it makes you uncomfortable, and it should. Um, it works, and the scene works. And in all the, for all the criticism I've got for, uh, for Love of the Dead – Nobody has ever attacked that scene. They've all commented on it, Uh but they've always said it works. The reason it works is because the guy doing it, it is the last thing in the world he wants to do. Every fiber of his being is is revolting, both revolting in terms of revolution and in terms of revulsion against doing it. And yet he has to, and there's a reason for that. He must. Um, And I think the scene works. what doesn't work is the book is neither fish nor fowl. Um, it's not quite a paranormal romance. Mm-hmm. It's not quite a horror book. Okay. And as a result, um, it, it doesn't go there. I wanted it to be about a man who was emotionally necrophilic. I wanted it to be about a man. The lead character works in the mortuary, and he is obsessed by the what might have beens, um, obsessed by the fact that every boy who comes in, because it's a rom- ravenous romance, every dead person, Male, gorgeous, has to be. It's the formula, right? Uh-huh. Everybody's got to be gorgeous. Um, obsessed with the fact that um, this might have been the one and he missed him. Um, and that's his excuse for not getting out of his rut. He does goes through the same routine, does the same things over and over, day after day after day, and doesn't know why he can't find love. Well, because he's not willing to expose himself. He's not willing to risk. And the dead are safe. Mm-hmm. Fantasizing about the dead is safe. Mm. Um, so in that way, the whole book is necrophilic. Um, and it didn't work. It never worked. Mm. Um, it, it, it didn't work while you were writing it? Or when it was done, it didn't it, it, no, it just nothing worked. Okay. Um, it just, I knew from the beginning it was wrong. And then I also had no background in zombies. Okay. I had to create a mythology. And I had not a clue what I was doing. Right. Um, I was I was mangling the mythology to try to make it fit, and and I know better than that. Um, that being said, it sells better than any other book that I've ever written, <laughs> which I don't get. Um, I think, in a weird sort of way, it should have been a kind of torture porn novel. Uh-huh. Um, I think it would have worked best if I had not been so leery of going there. Uh-huh. Um, I think I could have gotten to places that I needed to get had I been willing to do that, and I wasn't. Um, um, but it just, I, the, I mean, it's my least favorite. But that being said, it has two of the most touching scenes I've ever written in it. 
Uh, the old lady's death. There's, of course, another old lady in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scene on an island that's a horrible scene of betrayal that's just wonderful. Um, but the book itself, just, I never, people people say to me, you know, what book should I read? And the my first words out of my mouth is, um, don't read Love of the Dead. <laughs> you know, because I was, that was the one that I was kind of like embarrassed for my mother to read yeah. when she finally said she wanted to read stuff. You know. so. uh, all right. Well, anything, uh, Anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about before we kind of? No, I think talk? I think we we we've been all over the place, you know. Yeah. Oh, oh, the new stuff. Oh, please, new yeah. stuff. Yay! Please, please. Um, I just sold um, I just sold a trilogy, a superhero trilogy, a gay superhero trilogy. I love it already. It's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, especially since um, in his mild mannered reporter guys, you know, he although in, in this case he's a male madam, um, <laughs> he's a sweet, wonderful, loving guy. And the minute he puts on the mask and the cape and the tights, he becomes a raving bitch. Um, he kind of re- he kind of resents having to pull people's fat out of the fire. Um, and I had a blast because um, um, I had fun with villains. Hmm. I got to make these crazy villains that were fun. Um, it's an interesting book because it's a three book arc, uh-huh. um, and I violated a lot of rules. And I think you can violate rules as a writer. I think you just need to know what they are. Absolutely. Um, the first book is lighthearted and great and ends on a major friggin' downer. I mean, uh-huh. you'll be shattered. Um, it, you'll be, like, all of a sudden you'll be crying wow. at the end of the first book. Um, but it's a three-book arc, yeah. and there's a reason for that. And it's, 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 it's crying event, coming out of crying event, oh, wow, laughing event. You know, to make up for it yeah. um, is the kind of way the book goes. And so I've sold those those three, which are fun. And again, I had a lot of trouble uh, placing them because even in today's world where, you know, post, um, post Brokeback, mm-hmm. um, po- post Will and Grace, post um, gay marriage, yeah. um, straight people accept gay people. Yeah. They want to be um, known for being cool with gay people. Mm-hmm. Um they don't mind us as their neighbors, and they, but they don't want us being what makes us quintessentially gay. Mm. They don't want to know why we're gay people, what we are about gay people. Mm-hmm. It's okay with Will and Grace as long as we don't open the door and see Will naked in bed. Right. Or if we do, he's got a funny line. Right. Um, and, and so it's very hard to sell gay stuff, not because of the sex, mm-hmm. but because of the sensibility. Um, but I did place these three, and they're coming out um, fairly soon. I don't That's know when. Great. Uh, the first one's called Fabulous in Tights. <laughs> uh, the second one's called Study in Spandex. And the third one's called The Wrong Shade of Turquoise. Um, and I'm doing a, a kind of major uh, paranormal erotic romance um, that's based on a uh, – it's, it's derivative of uh, 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 some classic stuff. Okay. Uh, you know, like – you know the gay version of the gay erotic version of Treasure Island. Wait, the original with a bunch of men on a ship. No, um, so I'm working on that, and then uh, I, I've been doing short stuff, and then I've been, uh, I finally uh, there's a uh, there's a science fiction piece that I was asked to write years ago, and I never finished it. Um, that I think I've got a handle on, and I'll, I'll write that. And that's going to be very heterosexual. There are not going to be any gay characters, and I don't think I don't think it calls for any. But again, sensibility. It's going to be high camp. That's great. So. That sounds terrific. Busy. Uh, can I ask you really quickly? And again, you know, if, if there's any details you want to share as a writer, sure. I get it. But I, uh, you you mentioned uh, not on this particular interview, but uh, but you mentioned a, a, an Alice in Wonderland story you're working that's on. That's the that's a paranormal. Erotic. Okay. Yeah. 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 Got that's, it. That's okay. Paranormal. Erotic. Yeah. That's that's uh, that's becoming a there. 
of air. Oh, because well, it's I, I, I know we're almost at the end, but we'll digress because yeah. hey, that's why God put me on Earth to digress <laughs> uh, and to talk. Um, I had nineteen main characters because <laughs> you have to. You you know you got Alice, you got the three dummies at the tea party, right? You've got Tweedledum and Tweedledee. You've got the Queen of Hearts. You've got um, you've got the Jabberwock. You've got um, who am I missing? You got the White Rabbit. You've got the Caterpillar. You've got the um, I mean I mean that's like ten right there. Yeah. You've you've got the Griffin, the Mock Turtle, the Walrus, the Carpenter. I mean, come on, right? And and you can cut some of them, like you can cut Humpty Dumpty because Humpty Dumpty's not really that interesting. Right. You can cut the the White Knight. You know. Um, the chick that turns into a sheep, but you've got 19 main characters. You kind of can't ignore Tweedledum and Tweedledee, yeah. right? Um, and I was—I had not balanced that many characters since the Trouble with Harry. Sure. You know, um, you know, Trouble with Harry has an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. Uh-huh. You know, there's like four things going on at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so I had to write it from the inside out. I had to write like four characters, and uh-huh. then I had to go back in. And add four more to this this huge bit. Got it. Um, and it's and it's grueling. And uh, like I you may have seen, I posted on Facebook the other day that we're like twenty thousand words into this thing and we haven't fucking gotten to Wonderland yet. <laughs> I mean, it's just bizarre, you know. But it's a fun book. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. That sounds like it's going to be great. Cool. Well, uh, well, I'll tell you. Well, this. Uh, even though we're wrapping up now, hopefully this won't be your your, your last visit to the podcast because I, cool. I I greatly enjoyed uh, uh, chatting you. with you and especially as some of your new work starts coming out, um, I'd be more than happy to bring you back and talk about cool. some of your new work. And of course, I'll have your uh, the the novels that you were so generous to to give me. I'll have those read and we can talk more in depth about those. Um, well, thank you so much for for hanging out. And uh, it, it, any 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 last words before we kind of wrap up? No, this is this is super. I mean, I'm I, this has been fun. You know, um, I've only done one of these before. Oh, really? Yeah, without such nifty microphones, they kind of <laughs> kind of look like nerfs. <laughs> They're really cool. Well, in that case, I'm a. Uh, uh, in that case, I'm. I'm you I'm pop honored. my cherry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't think there's a better place to end than that. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Hal Bodner. How great was that, dude? How much did you love that conversation? Man, he's so interesting and funny and, you know, articulate. And he's, you know, he's he's like the best, com- he's the, the best combination. He's, he's such a good combination, I could barely get this sentence out. <laughs> uh, Hal Bodner, he's the best combination of you know, uh, rambunctious and funny and eccentric and articulate and interesting and classy and all these things kind of rolled into one really great dude, a really wonderful conversation. I very much look forward to having Hal back on the show, you know, one of these days, you know, not too far down the line, just really had a great time talking to him. And if you're interested in buying any of the books that Hal and I talked about, including, you know, Bike Club and The Trouble with Harry, all of his books uh, are available on Amazon.com. And as you guys know, if you have any shopping to do on Amazon.com, all you have to do is go to the official website of this podcast, martinlestrapshow.com. Once you get there, click on the shop page. You're going to see an Amazon banner. Click on that banner. It's going to take you to Amazon. And just like that, you can do all the shopping you were otherwise going to do, but because you went to Amazon through the through the website, 
we here at the Martinless Trap Show Podcast Hour, we get a little bit of money kicked back to us. So whatever money you spend, Amazon kicks back a small percentage of that money and then brings it back to us. And then we get to reinvest that money back into the show to make this program as good as we can possibly make it for you. And that's exactly what we want to do. And, of course, on top of that, if you specifically want to buy uh, copies of Hal's books, uh, you can find a couple icons on the shop page. Look for pictures of Bike Club as well as The Trouble with Harry. You're going to see those on, on the shop page uh, underneath, the, uh, underneath the heading of, you know, you know guest books, movies, etc. Click on either one of those titles. It's going to take you straight to the Amazon link where you can buy those titles. And, again... Because you went to Amazon through the website, if you decide to buy Hal's books, and after listening to him talk, I don't know why you wouldn't want to buy his books, then, uh, then you know, buy the books. And again, we get a little kickback here. We get to reinvest that money back into the show. And, you know, Hal, as I mentioned during the conversation, he was kind enough to bring me copies of both of those books, Bike Club and The Trouble with Harry, and he signed both of them. And so uh, I started reading Bike Club, and it's, it's outstanding. It's really outstanding, and I I highly encourage uh, anybody to read it. I can't wait to finish it so I can move on to The Trouble with Harry, and then, of course, once I finish that, I'll I'll move on to the rest of Hal's uh, catalog of books because he's just a a prolific writer and storyteller, and probably by the time you finish listening to this episode, he's probably written another book, for all I can tell. So anyway, uh, before I wrap up for good, I just want to remind you guys that uh, when you do go to the official website, martinlestrapshow.com, Amongst other things, you'll see a link to, to iTunes. If you click on that iTunes link from the podcast, it's, it's going to take you straight to the, to the iTunes version of this program. And once you get there, if you, you know, if you're already if you, if, you're, uh, if you have an, an account on iTunes, then you can subscribe to the Martin Strap Show Podcast Hour. And I highly encourage all of you to subscribe on iTunes because once you subscribe, you automatically get downloads of the show every week when they come out. You don't have to remember to look for it or, or click the download button. It's going to do it for you. Now, if you're not if you're not subscribed and you just you know show up every week and you press play, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. I appreciate it a great deal. But I also know many of you are subscribed on iTunes, so I'd like to get more of you subscribed. That way, you don't even have to think about it. Just you, you wake up Monday morning, and you're going to have a fresh episode of the Martin Strap Show podcast hour waiting for you. We're also on Stitcher Radio, so if you like listening to, to, to your podcast on Stitcher, we're now on Stitcher. I've got a link to that on the website as well, but if you just went to Stitcher and searched for the, the Martin Strap Show podcast hour, you'd find it. And anyway, having said that, my guess is uh, I'm going to get uh, my, my, my uh, look at me. I can barely fucking talk this week. See, the funny thing is I was about to say, uh, I expect that I have a lot of new listeners this week, uh, specifically listeners who are fans of Hal Bodner and wanted to check out this conversation. And uh, while I was trying to put my best foot forward, I ended up uh, tripping over my words all over again. So um, whatever. I don't know. I'm human. I do my best. That said, if this was your first time listening to the show, uh, specifically because uh, you love Hal Bodner and you wanted to check out the conversation, I sincerely hope you enjoyed the program, and I very, mu- I very much hope that uh, you come back next week to, to listen to more of the show. And if you did like the show, I hope you go backwards and listen to some of the older episodes. You know, we've got a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of podcasts uh, in the backlog for you to, to check out. And uh, and then of course, I hope you subscribe, subscribe on iTunes, or check the show out on on Stitcher Radio. Or, of course, on the official 
website of this podcast, martinlesstrapshow.com. So that said, I want to thank everybody for joining me again this week. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, I'll see you on the other side.